Welcome back, Brown Girls. Ashanti here, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, and this is the first episode of Season 2 of the BGG Podcast. If you are new to our podcast, welcome. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back. And thank you for your support of Season 1. This episode is very special for me as I had the chance to interview a group of women who have had a profound impact on my life, both professionally and personally. I can easily say that I would not be the woman that I am without the mentorship, support, and love that they have given me. The Colored Girls, Don Merzil, Yolanda Carraway, Bishop Leah Daughtry, and Mignon Moore are four women who blazed trails in politics, but left the door open for the women behind them and saved them a seat at the table. They recently released the paperback version of their NAACP Image Award-winning book for colored girls who have considered politics. I caught up with them at the Jack and Jill of America conference at Howard University in Washington, D.C. for a special conversation on servant leadership and the future of politics for women and people of color. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Ashanti Golar. I am the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, which is a blog and podcast dedicated to women of color and politics. And today I have the honor of moderating this conversation for Jack and Jill of America at afternoon with the colored girls who are my sheroes. These women literally paved the way for me to be able to do the work that I do today. And I am proud to have you all hear from them. So without further ado, I'm going to bring them out so we can get the conversation going. Please welcome Donna Brazil. The Reverend Leah Daughtry. And Mignon Moore. But to get the conversation going, I do want to open up with a passage from the book that I think is really fitting for the conversation we have today. Leah speaks about the journey that led the colored girls from the voting booths of Louisiana and Alabama to conventions and the Capitol all the way to the White House. She says the making of a colored girl begins with the ethos of black people that black children learn from their parents from the beginning. You've got to be better. You've got to know more. You've got to study harder you got to be twice as good. I think in every instance, that's what you had. You know you've got to wake up earlier. You know you're going to have to work longer. You know that you have to know more than your white counterpart to be considered equal, even sometimes to be considered almost equal. And then you say, we took that same ethos that every black child in America has and walked through the door with that ethos. So let's start with what doors were you walking through that led you all to be connected? So imagine a door that was shut, a door that was not even available to color girls like us. What we found as not just sisters, but as activists, we found a door that was left ajar by People like Mary McLeod Bethune, Ada B. Wells, Shirley Chisholm, Fannie Lou Hamer, Dorothy Height, Shirley Chisholm, Reverend Willie Chaplin Barrow, and so many others. And when we got to that door, we didn't just hold it open for each other. We took the hinges off and made sure that there was a path for every little colored girl going forward. 
And so our friendship began when we were in our 20s. Whether it was the Jackson campaign of 1984 or the campaign that made Dr. King's birthday a national holiday or the Jackson campaign in 1988. But throughout this entire experience, we had one thread and that thread was we wanted to make a difference. We heard the call to serve and we decided to step up and rush through that door so that we could find our seats at the table. I would add, how y'all doing? Um, for me, uh, and I think a thread that runs through all of us, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, Brooklyn in the house, all right now, um, to uh, activist parents. And, and before I went to school, our, our family instilled in all of us uh, a love of learning. So before I went to kindergarten, my father had already taught me how to read. So when I got to kindergarten, I wasn't interested in the doll corner or the Easy Big Oven. Some of y'all are old enough to remember the Easy Big Oven. <laughs> I wanted to read, I wanted to read books. And my teachers decided something was wrong with me because they thought I was antisocial. So they wanted to put me in special ed. So my parents were insistent that, that, that I did not belong in special ed and they asked to have me tested. So when they tested me, I was in kindergarten, when they tested me, they found out I was reading on a fourth grade level and I was doing math on a fifth grade level. So then they wanted to skip me to third grade. I was six. From that, from that, I learned, I was fortunate because I had parents. I had a father who was in full-time ministry so he could go and sit at the school all day long <laughs> and aggravate the administrators. Every black child doesn't have that. And there are so many of our children who don't have, who get stuck behind closed doors because there's no one to advocate for them to get in through the open door. And so as I grew up, and I think this is a thread that runs, how do we open doors? Who are the people who are missing at the table? I'm at the table, but there's some others who are not. How do we open doors to ensure that everyone is represented and has a seat? Because I could have easily, if I didn't have anybody advocating for me, who knows where I would have been? And you, when, they, when they discovered their error, then they're like, oh my God, she's a genius. <laughs> well, the special ed classes were probably full of children who didn't have a chance. <laughs> and so for, for, I think that's a common thread for us is we were fortunate enough to have opportunities come to us, some that we worked for and some that the sky just opened, God just opened a door and we were able to go through, but we're not there for ourselves. We're there for, every, for the others who are not there, who cannot be there, and how do we bring them with us? I think for me, I've always seen public service as an honor and a privilege. Not the privilege that we know today, not white privilege, not black privilege, but it was a privilege to serve and when you get that, when you get that word, that kernel of that word, public service embodied in your soul, what it makes you do is it makes you look on the side of yourself and say, okay, this person is not at the table. This person is not at the table. We've all had leadership positions and every time we go in a room, we have to see someone other than ourselves. It is just ingrained in us. It, it was taught to us. 
I remember when I first came to Dukakis-Benson campaign, I was there to become a cohort with my sister Donna, but before I could even get in a room with her, she was on strike. Now, how you strike on a campaign, God knows, but she was on strike. <laughs> and so I call her like a good sister, you know, because the sisters are going to hook up. Hey, D, I'm in town. Are you over at the campaign? No, I'm not at no campaign. You know, she had a couple of colorful words, and I know some young people in here. And I'm not coming back until they give me my money for the CBC. And I'm like, whew, I think this is going to be a joy ride. But anyway, so, but she stood on principle, and who she saw even inside that campaign was the fact that they needed the African-American community and if they wanted the African-American community, at least they would invest in the CBC. So she finally got her money. She finally came back to work. And then, of course, we became nothing but good trouble together. So, Ashanti, I was boycotting the campaign that was paying me. And it was a principle. There's always a principle, especially if you are a woman of color and a black woman in particular. The principle is no one should disrespect you. And I knew, I mean, I went all the way up to the top of the campaign and I made the very best case for the Dukakis campaign and the Democratic Party to support the Congressional Black Caucus. Back during those days, it was less than 20 members. Today we have 55 members. But I thought if you wanted our vote, you should show some respect. And you know, when I was younger, I did have a little, my tongue was a little, little loose. <laughs> you know, you, you ever heard if walls could talk? And as she Did says, say when you little were younger, <laughs> we like got the big eye roll going like younger. Yeah, when I was younger. <laughs> oh, if walls could talk, I, I, I tell the kids, I have cussed everybody out for you. In the name of you, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and that's why we have to have a preacher on stage because you never know when I might need you know, a little confession and a little blessing, because I'm Catholic. And sometime I need them Throughout both. Throughout this dialogue, you will see me going. <laughs> that means time's up, Donna. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to reclaim my time. <laughs> Wait, we go. No, we want Ashanti. Oh, we're going to let Ashanti we gonna, reclaim Ashanti is going to reclaim her time so she can ask us another question. Okay, go ahead, Ashanti. I'll, re I'll reclaim my time later. I ain't going nowhere, though. <laughs> One of the things I love about these conversations is you really don't need a moderator when you're talking to the color girls. Never. <laughs> so the book actually starts off with you all talking about a call to serve. But one of the things I love about you all is even after all these years, everything that you've done, it is still so embedded in service, especially in politics. For so many people, it's about power. And I think especially during this week, we've seen people abuse their power. And you talk about this in the book, and I, I bought my clean copy today so they wouldn't see all my notes and everything. 
you talk about keeping your moral compass and not losing yourself. And one of the lines that I underlined and starred was, never get to the point where the applause are what you are seeking. How being the colored girls, women that have paved the way, how do you still keep so true to yourself when other people have lost their way? Um, well, obviously for me, I'm a fifth generation pastor. God is at the base of everything as far as, I, as far as I'm concerned. But I, I think part of it is, is defining what power is. And what we've seen this week is people pursuing power for their own personal gain. Right. And, and that certainly is a definition of power. It's not how I would describe power. For, for me, power is you have power to help other people get power. Right. So that they can help other people get power so that they can we can all build together. It's not about my personal power because Gannett dies when I die. And then that doesn't make any sense. But I don't have any power if you don't have power. And if you don't have power, and if you don't have power, and if you can't get in the room, then I failed. If you're not succeeding, then I failed. So if you re when you redefine the idea of power and what power is really for, then it becomes a fueling mechanism because then my goal is to help you. And my goal is to be able to achieve so that I can help you achieve and you can help somebody else achieve and, you can, and you've seen that in our own relationship. That's the, that's the base of power. And when you have that as, as your spirit and as your ethos, then it makes the work easier. Not in terms of the work really being easy because the work is never easy, but it makes it a purposeful. And so you can sleep at night because you know you haven't killed anybody, you haven't hurt anybody, you haven't trampled anybody, you haven't disempowered anyone, but the work is about helping other people achieve their maximum. You know, I think for us, and I think I can say this for all of us, including Yolanda, who unfortunately got, uh, is sick today, the, the mentors that we had, the women that we were able to emulate and to embody, when you talk about Dorothy Hyde, Dr. Maya Angelou, Cicely Tyson, God bless her soul, who's still alive and with us today, Reverend Wel Willie Tapton Barrow, Coretta Sky King, Dr. Betty Shabazz, all of these women who we had the opportunity to really personally meet, not just kind of do a hand throw and a handshake, to me, they embody the best, not only of public service, but the best of power, because they didn't have to flaunt it. They, people don't understand that there would be no King Center or probably Dr. King without Coretta King. I mean, all of these women who stood with their husbands and some of them that didn't have husbands. I look at Reverend Barrow, who was one of my mentors, and you know, there wouldn't be no Operation Push. There would be no Reverend Jackson without her. And, you know, they used to call her Little Warrior, but the fact is she never had to flaunt her power because, one, it boils down to two things. People who want power don't want to work. They want to tell you what to do. But people who want to invest in you will work as hard as you, and they will see you. The reason why this organization is so important is because you see our children and you start investing in them at two years old. To me, that's power. 
You know, I'm trying to figure out how I can get some of y'all power so I can transfer it over to these nieces I got who are now married, got two little ones, and I want them to get, because that's power. And so I think for us, our power came through the people we were associated with. You know, this myth about who we are, and you know, we have to lower the barrier. The, we have to lower the entry to how people think about getting involved in politics and getting involved in service because it's no mystery. All it is is hard work. I mean, we still do the same level of hard work we did from the day we got in. I used to carry Reverend Barrow's purse. If that was power, great, I, I'll take it because I sat in so many meetings volunteering to carry that purse and I heard and my instincts became sharp. And you learn the people that were real, you learn the people that were really going to deliver for the community. And so for me, that purse became power. Well, to me, being a powerful person, having a powerful voice, starts with knowing who you are. We live in a society today that continues to judge us using old cultural stereotypes about who we are. And as a result of it, we don't know our own power. We have no ability to even understand how powerful we are. When I think about where we started and how far we have come over the last almost 40 years together, our journey has been long. Donna talking for herself now. Mine's been about 25. <laughs> well, Mignon, I'm 29 for the second time. I'll be 30 soon saying. for the second time. And that's okay. I'm always going to be a millennial. <laughs> it's in the eyes of the beholder. And age ain't nothing but a number. But when I think about, I mean, take a deep breath right now. And think about... 25, 30 years from now, the majority of voters, the majority of people in this country will be non-white. And we're not talking about, this is not gonna, this is gonna happen so quickly that we're gonna wake up one day and say, huh? you mean we the majority? Think about it, the people in Texas now, the majority of voters are non-white. They don't even know it, they haven't even figured it out, therefore they're not using their power. <laughs> North Carolina in 2020, the majority of voters are gonna be non-white and they have not figured out their power. We don't have to ask anybody for anything, we already have the power to change everything, which is why you see the laws changing to stop us from voting, from stopping us from using our power. Know your power, know your value, know who you are. You don't have to beg for nothing. Pretty soon they're gonna be begging us and yet you don't know your power. Know your own power. And I don't even have to get into the, the religious thing because God gave you power when he gave you breath. Don't start me. As someone who has worked and volunteered on political campaigns across the country, I've seen firsthand how transformative small-dollar donors are. ActBlue is a nonprofit organization dedicated specifically to empowering small-dollar donors everywhere. As one donor named Jacqueline said, I like donating through ActBlue, a safe, empowering way to be politically progressive beyond the classroom. When you see your contribution data on the pie chart, you realize the impact of your investment in the candidates and causes you champion. Every effort counts, each dollar accumulates. 
your little legacy remains. I couldn't agree more, Jacqueline. AdBlue's powerful fundraising platform makes it easy for grassroots supporters to make their voices heard and to help thousands of Democratic campaigns, progressive organizations, and nonprofits build people-powered movements. Small-dollar donors are on track to give $3 billion via AdBlue this cycle, with an average contribution size of about $30. Visit secure.adblue.com backslash about to become a small-dollar donor yourself. So this is also a book about friendship. And you can see through this discussion that they have a great friendship. And there's some really good banter in the book, too, where just reading it, and I also listened to it, I just cracked up laughing. But you all really solidified the friendship on the Jackson campaign. I think is that kind of safe to say during that era. And one of the things that was said was working on Reverend Jackson's campaign was you were democratizing democracy because so many black people still did not know what was behind the curtain and how politics worked. So you were doing that, you made changes at the DNC, we're now going into the 2020 presidential election cycle, I like to say we're already in it because it's dominating everything. All these years later, what are your opinions about what you're seeing, but particularly around the fact that you have so many black women in senior leadership campaigns. Donna, you were the first black woman to run a presidential campaign. We now, we now have Maya Rupert, who is running Julian Castro's campaign. At the NAACP, they had a panel that was all senior black women from presidential campaigns and you all made that possible. So how are you feeling about what you're seeing? But we also know the work isn't done. So what advice do you have for us to keep going? I would say that we're happy that they're at the table, and we're certainly happy that they are running major campaigns. I look at Maya out in Texas. But, you know, it's a lot of, you know, look at Ashanti. She's got a very powerful position over at Emerge where she is actually helping to elect women. And I think our theory is we, we are delighted when you are at the table. I mean, we're overjoyed when you're at the table. But please know that when you're at the table, that's not the end of it. You have to be at that table with a purpose. And so we pray that when they're at the table and they see something that's going down that's wrong, they have the courage to speak up because, see, that's what Dr. Angelo taught us. You can have all the power, you can have all the titles, but if you don't have courage, it will cause you to go in that room and turn against yourself. And so I'm, the women that we see that are coming up behind us are fearless, they're fighters. I look at Simone Sanders, Angela Rye, all these young black women, they are doing it, doing it, doing it. Now they got to figure out how they're going to open doors for everybody else because it's not enough to be the only one anymore. That should be so passe. So you all are keeping your work going. And a few years ago, there, the magic wand was waved and the Reverend Dartrey had the idea for Power Rising. So tell us a little bit about Power Rising and the work that you continue to do to focus on black women and not only their political empowerment, but their business empowerment, health, the things that make us whole. 
Yeah, so after the 2016 election, when we were all uh, picking ourselves up off the floor and trying to uh, determine next steps, uh, Mignon and I were invited to speak at a retreat of the Congressional Black Caucus Women. And uh, we did our talks, and, and Congresswoman Waters said, so, so what should we do now? This was like December 1st. <laughs> I think I had just gotten out of bed after election day. <laughs> and, and, and it was like, I need some clothes. I, I'm gonna go over here and talk to the sisters. And she said, what should we do now? And I said, um, famous last words, if I had a magic wand, I would gather black women together to talk about what we do next and to plot, our, plot a, a forward path for ourselves. And, they, and we all said that day, that's a great idea, let's do it. But you know black women, we got nine pots on a two burner stove. <laughs> and so we didn't think about it anymore. Uh, life moved on and then something happened. I think it was something at the DNC and we just all got mad. All That's over. in the book, what happened. It's in the book, okay. Uh -huh. We got mad and I was on my vacation in Puerto Rico and I started calling people. And I called every head of an uh, organization that was in my phone, <laughs> labor unions, my sisters, and said, we need to have a black women's conference. And that's how Power Rising was born. And so we met first in uh, Atlanta in 2018, and we didn't really know what was gonna happen. We just know we wanted a space where black women of all ages, all uh, demographics could come, and we sent it, and the funny thing was, Three weeks before the conference, we, I think we had 100 people registered. And we were like, oh Lord, we got all these bills to pay and we got 100 people coming to this conference. And then if something happens, you know how black people do, we wait till the last minute to register for everything. It drives me crazy as an event planner, right? Cause you can't, you don't know what kind of food to order, you don't know cause we wait till the last minute. We know we going, just sign up. Just register. Just register. We haven't determined which outfits we got yet. I know so we want to have a whole bag before we register. <laughs> so like three weeks before, we Mignon and I were like, we're gonna go because this was our own money we were spending, right? And then the floodgate opened, and within 72 hours, we were completely sold out. 1,200 seats just go, gone just like that. And we gathered in Atlanta, and it was the most remarkable thing. It was a thousand women from 38 states. Mm -hmm. The youngest was six months old. The oldest was 95. The women, the women of the CBC were there. Cicely Tyson was one of the keynote speakers. Jennifer Lewis, the mother of, every, of Black Hollywood. It was just... <laughs> This amazing thing, and Mignon and I watched the, watched the installation of things, and we just cried. Because to see black women coming together around, not just politics, because it's certainly one of the pillars, but our health and our wellness, business uh, and economics, technology and innovation, and coming together to say, what are we gonna do now? Not just as a community, but as me, myself. How do I empower myself? And we came away from that conference, we only intended to do one. Right. 
Because right. we was like, we're just going to have one, and this is going to be great, and we're going to feel better after 2016. We have continued to, we're now going into our third year. We'll be in Baltimore April 16th through the 19th, 2020, and we hope you all will come. And it's, it's the kind of conference where you don't know who you're sitting next to because we don't do VIP seats. Mm -hmm. Right. Y'all just come. You might be sitting next to Deborah Lee, who at that time was a head of BET or the president of a hospital. It's just black women. We having a dance party. We learning stuff. It's trans sisters, straight sisters, gay sisters, religious sisters, atheists, you name it. We just black women together in a safe space where we can be all of who we are and decide how we're gonna plot our course for we keep it cheap, it's $150, so that every sister is able to be there and to be accessible. We'd love to have you, Jack and Jill, as one of our partners. As we, as we plot for what we're going to do next. And it's not just about what we do organizationally, but it's about how do we make your life different? How do you walk away with the tools you need to start your business or to go back to school or to write your score or to build that manuscript and then connect with another sister who's just around the corner from you that you didn't even know and you can build in your communities together. So that's what Power Rising is. And we got the name because we talk a lot about speaking truth to power. But we are the power speaking truth. And so we invite you to come, come alongside of us April 16th to 19th at 2020 in Baltimore. And you can find out more on our website, powerrising.org. And I promise Mignon I wouldn't wave no more magic wands. No more. After that first year. So we do want to try to get in some questions from the audience. We do have mics set up. So if you have a question, just go. We got one there. We got one there. So while we're waiting to see if there are any questions. I want to hear from some of these young people. Come on, baby, I got it. Come on. Y'all ain't never met nothing like me. I'm so young, I have fun all the time. I can't wait till I get home and get to my adult coloring book. Come on, young people, show up. I see y'all. Well, the, the young woman at the mic. I know. I'm looking at these young people. Young man over there with your head down. Put it up, baby. You might be my president one day. Put your head up. I see you, sugar. Now, there you go. Ask your question, and then I'm going to get back to these young people. You young, too, honey. I know. Yes, yes. yes. I feel like I'm young. You are? I feel like it. Go on. Um, you know, I've been in politics for every, over 20 years now, and one of the things I've seen is we're coming into an age where we see the Democratic Party very much dependent on the black women vote. Alabama, those southern states that they would not get without us making the push. How do we make sure that it's not just us bringing them over, but making sure that we're holding them accountable to our communities? One of the things we see is even in the current Democratic primaries, where you can say the front runner is only the front runner on the backs of black and black women. Um, so then, is there a way for us to, to hold that campaign accountable? To say, if you make it, if we stand by your side, that there'll be a black woman on that ticket. Or if you make it, the next Supreme Court justice 
we'll have a black woman there. Is there a way for us not to do what I, I described, like the, the Anita Hill theory, where they just come to us and they recognize that they've wronged us in the past, but that we actually demand more in the future? I think, that is, I think that is so critical. And one of the things that I say all the time is we have to see voting, we have to see voting like it's a lifestyle and not an event. So often we show up just because we know it is the event of the day. But in fact, she just defined a lifestyle. So if, we, if, if black women are voting 73%, listen to me, 73%, we outvote every ethnic group, including white women. Yeah, we sure do. So do we demand what we want? Yes, but I think a lot of times what we do is we go home after we get, after we get who we want elected, then we go back to our seats, and then we wait for the next election. Instead of saying, Jack and Jill, this is not a Republican or a Democratic issue, this is a issue of empowerment. We have given you our trust so what are you giving us back? We have to continue to show up and demand. And yes, we can demand these things. And yes, we should demand these things. And we should be saying it every time you get a mic in your hand or you're talking to politicians. You should be saying it when they, when they come into your backyard because you know they're going to all be coming in a few minutes because everybody trying <laughs> to get a vote. You got to have your list ready. And I wouldn't have, a ten li I wouldn't have 10 things on the list but I would definitely look at three things that you know are important to this organization or you know that are important to black women and just keep drilling it, drilling it in, drilling it in. Yes, I want to see a Supreme Court. Yes, I want to see a vice president. Yes, yes, and yes. And you keep saying it long enough, it becomes true. Look at Trump. I mean, he keeps he keep saying all this stuff that he thinks is true, and it ain't true, but by the time he finished saying it, 30% 30, 30 of his people think it's true. Keep saying it. Black women, 75% of black women are registered to vote, 75%. So in addition to actually voting, we are the highest performing demographic in America today. We take our civic responsibility extremely seriously. And so visibility is viability. Just like Ashanti said, if we don't see people around you now while you are running, we're not gonna see people around you when you're in the White House. Let's, take, let's start there, all right? So when these candidates come to your community and you look around and you say, hmm, hmm. Well, if you don't see you, then you know he ain't about you. Right. or she is not about you. Let me just say this, we are superbly qualified for anything going in the world. We can do it, we have done it, and often we don't get the credit for what we actually do. So we need to be at the table, not at the dinner, sir, when they're writing the menu. Hello. And if the policies don't impact you and is about you, remind them that three, one, two, three, four, three out of four black women are registered to vote. Three out of four. We account for 106 electoral votes. We're not in the minor league, we're in the major league. And that's what the candidates should know. Next question. Thank you. Um, what got you into politics? I'm Ty Thomas from West Palm Beach. I'll go first. 
I started at the age of nine, so I've been having a great old time. I wanted a playground in my neighborhood, and I, I got to work with people who were involved in the civil rights movement. We did voter registration, and my parents and all of their friends wanted us to get our roads paved and more schools and libraries. I just wanted a playground. And that was enough for me to go door to door and ask all of my friends to ask their parents to register to vote. And guess what? We got that playground. It's been 50 years, several hurricanes. That playground is still in Kenna, Louisiana. So that's how you get involved. Find something that you are passionate about. Go out there and do it. Um, my question is about how do we energize the black vote in the Midwest? I mean, all the states that we lost in 2016, voted for Obama both times. And I'm wondering how we can energize the black vote to make up the difference that we lost in 2016. I want everybody to look at this young man because I want you to just say to me today, I understand my power. And if I have a candidate in this race, it will not lose because I did not come out and vote. The reason why we lost many of those states is young people didn't want to vote for the candidate of any choice, I guess. And I, if you understand your power, millennials have more power in this 2020 election than any of, than any of us. You have the power to elect the next president. All you have to do is decide. And you can be a one-man show. Look at what that young woman did up at the UN. She's not from this country, but she, she came here. She decided she had an issue on climate change. One person. All you have to do is be one voice. And you have to say enough is enough. Young people, if we want to have a voice, then we must come out and vote. And so, that's how you get, how, that's how we not lose. I had so much fun chatting with the colored girls, and I hope you liked the conversation. The BGG ran our first giveaway contest, a signed copy of Four Colored Girls to Have Considered Politics for those signed up on our email list. The winners of the books are Cynthia Dawson and Bofa Malone. Congratulations, ladies. If you liked what you heard from the colored girls, definitely go out and pick up a copy of their book. Keep up with us in between episodes on our website, www.thebgguide.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. Until next episode, Brown Girls.